Choose a lane. This was the advice someone gave me when I was starting out. You want to make movies? Work in movies. You want to make TV? Work in TV. You want to make commercials? Stay in commercials, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not bad advice for when you're getting started. It's nice to have the focus, the sort of intention, know what you're working towards. But at a point, how does staying in a lane limit you as a storyteller, a filmmaker, a director, a writer, a creative? Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And this week I speak with writer-director Natalia Leite. And Natalia has made a career breaking out of her lane. Natalia is known for her highly stylized and assertive narrative work across commercials, documentaries, feature films, and television. Natalia gained a ton of attention with her directorial debut, Bear, which premiered at Tribeca. After its debut, IndieWire named her a filmmaker to watch. Her following feature, the indie thriller MFA, starring Francesca Eastwood, premiered at South by Southwest. The film laid the groundwork for the ensuing Me Too movement and was very much part of that conversation. She directed the pilot of the highly anticipated upcoming Hulu series Black Cake based on the New York Times bestseller and produced by Oprah. She also directed the last season of The Handmaid's Tale, including one of the most talked about episodes of the season, that bottle episode featuring June and Serena. How could we forget? Outside of this, She has done extensive commercial directing, working with brands such as Verizon, Vans, The North Face, and Coca-Cola. Prior to working in scripted content, Natalia created documentaries for Vice TV by immersing herself in different subcultures, among a group of train hoppers in the Midwest and as a truck stop stripper in New Mexico as a form of first-person investigative storytelling. In our conversation, we unpack establishing tone in your film work and a culture on set, what it's like jumping from one format to the other, and how working within different formats can influence characters and expand on how you think about story, how working with commercial clients has helped her navigate the needs of network execs, etc., and more. And now, my interview with Natalia Leite. This, this owl lives outside my my house and it usually is just like a nighttime thing, but it's hooting today. She's hooting today. I think it's a, I think it's a lady owl. It's an omen. Exactly. So if you hear that, she's saying hello to you. Okay. That's very nice. I love mm-hmm. owls. I actually have an owl tattoo. Oh no, not this really? one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, it. that's gorgeous. What yeah. was the inspiration? Well, this is a good, this is a good intro because uh, it was, so I have tattoos that were just you know, stamps on different moments in my life, as most people do. And the owl, it was when I was making my first feature. I got it afterwards because, well, we were shooting in New Mexico. There's a ton of barn owls there, right? But I was never really used to seeing that. Um, I was living in New York at the time. I grew up in Brazil. And a few moments, there were owls, like broad daylight. And I'd be like looking through the monitor and I'm like, what is that? And it would just be like on our set. Wow. This, these owls were just showing up on our set. And then one time I was driving back from set. It was late at night. It was like down a dirt road, super dark. And I see something all of a sudden in the middle of the road and I like hit the brakes and it's this owl standing in the middle of the road and it oh lifts its flight and it, its wings like 
flipped the um, windshield of my car just flew right over me and yeah, I felt what? like it was an omen happening. Like yeah, was that's something going on. style yeah. owl interaction. Wow, that's so cool, though. I love that. Yeah, so I kind I of love just that. fell in love with the animal and decided to get it tattooed. And and here we are. My my neighbor owl is like trying to trying to engage with you on the podcast. Yeah, so. yeah, there's something there um, for sure. Well, tell me, how did you get your start as a as a writer director? So I had a bit of a unusual path because I didn't go to film school. So this is pretty fitting. No perfect film school. forum. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I went to art school and mm-hmm. it was like a visual art school. I got in with a drawing portfolio and was during that the course of the program was just dabbling in all different mediums. I was doing like printmaking, performance, photography. Like I just went all over the place with it. Mm-hmm. And was exploring. And I think looking back, I was always making work that it was about storytelling in some sort of medium. Yeah. Um, but towards the end of the program, I got really into doing what they called new genres, which was like performance with installation, which was like the closest thing to film, I guess. Yeah. Um, and making like little short films out of stuff like that. Um, after or during school, actually, I worked for a documentary filmmaker who did that film Hoop Dreams and was just like transcribing interviews for him and doing some like light editing on stuff. Yeah. And it just got me into like really loving the medium. So as, you know, after I graduated, I started getting into making short films and little scrappy things with friends. I love the Hoop Dreams tie-in because you're the second filmmaker that we've had on that spoke about how Hoop Dreams and the team behind it specifically were their inspiration for oh. getting into filmmaking. That the, the um, that was, if you listen back to our podcast episode with the team of the documentary film subject. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that that doc keeps coming up and keeps coming up. So, so, so you started to, I know it's, I, I actually um, saw it years ago and I'm going to go back and watch it with the lens of like, what is the thing that, keeps people coming back or draws them into storytelling. Right. So you moved into, into making your own projects, making shorts. One of my follow-up questions about your career is how you developed your voice because you do have such a distinctive voice. You've been uh, named in Variety and the Times as having this assertive, uh, bracing style. How did you find that? How did that come to be? I think it was, it's hard to say, right? Because it's hard to like turn the camera on myself and think about how this all melds together. But it's just like anything else, like things that I was like personally drawn to. And I actually love that I started off in documentaries when it was like art and then it was doc doc stuff. And because I wanted to understand humans you know my i think it always came from like wanting to understand how humans operate and grounding everything in good characters and then on top of that because i have a visual arts background i was finding visual metaphors for how to explain the humanity right mm-hmm. so i think maybe it's a combination of like the rawness of what it is to be alive with like visual having a visual style that mm-hmm. comes from my background um, put together. This is, does that make sense? Totally, totally. And, and it's interesting that you bring up the raw style, the rawness to the field, because 
you've worked across so many different formats. You've worked across, you know, from sketch and docs and that type of storytelling to moving into long form to commercials and television and, you know, where you're at now. So, so that rawness there is, it carries throughout and, and it's very apparent when I look at your work. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think like, like once I started getting into scripted stuff, I was finding ways to put the documentary subjects into the scripted work Mm -hmm. or like finding some scripted ways to make documentaries. And I just love that mishmash of stuff, like how to blur the lines of what's real and what's not. And I've also done a lot of work with like using improv with actors and just finding like how to make this feel as organic as possible. Can you speak a little bit about that? It's something I'm very fascinated by because I, I come from an improv background traditional UCB improv. Um, and I have made the mistake of relying on improv in that sort of comedy way in the past. And I don't think that translates to the screen. But then on the other hand, I've had some experiences and some success where we're using improv to find the right language, find the right moments. And then we can sort of like control the performance, control what's being done, but there is still this improv element. So when you're on set working with actors and in bringing improv into it, what does that look like? It looks like, I mean, there's, there's different styles, right? So like I've done a, I did like a comedy web series that was, I don't know, like 80% improv. And it was Mm -hmm. like, we were specifically working with comedians, people who are really good with improv. And so like, you know, you just give them a platform and they're just like spewing out like gems, right? Because they're just used to doing this. Um, and, and just cracking up jokes. And then on the other side of it, like on using improv in the more dramatic side, I found that like some actors are just absolutely will not do improv. They just get stiff. They're suddenly aware that they have to come up with something and they just can't do it. Um, so I think it's a little bit of like casting the right people who are able to break out of it. Um, and also just creating an environment where people feel comfortable to break script. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's like, like, I feel like for me as a director, right? One of my big jobs is to call bullshit. So yeah. if I'm seeing a scene and I just not buying it, it doesn't feel organic, then I might suggest like, okay, let's, let's break out of the lines a little bit, right? Let's yeah. like talk over each other, which of course sound hates. Like, let's just like loosen things up and don't yeah. be stuck to the words. Like, we know what the scene is about. We know what the intention is. Um, and, and sometimes I'll like even initiate that, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm very much of the mindset of like, if I want the actors to do something, then like, I want them to be vulnerable. I'm going to have to be vulnerable first, you know? So I'll start like riffing on stuff, even if I'm saying something totally stupid and then they'll pick up on it, you know? And then right, it's like, okay, right. wait, wait, let's roll. Let's do this. Like now we're, we're like finding the groove. When you're when you're on set and you feel this is like diving very specifically into that moment on set when everyone is there tuned in where action has been called, like what are you tracking for with are are you there watching the actors or are you watch standing with the monitor? Like how do you like to be tracking the bullshit if yeah, it's there or yeah. or whether you're getting the performance? Like how do you dial into that? Yeah. I I have in the past done it where I'm just watching what's live in front of me. And I don't think that's the best way because it all that matters is what ends up on camera, right? Right. So 
I might be feeling something just watching the action, but then I look at the camera and I'm like, wait a minute, like that's not there. And so I have to watch the monitor, but I will be like, I'll be as close to the actors as possible, right? Mm-hmm. I want them to, to be, I want to be in the room with them. Right. And so sometimes I'll have a little monitor and I'm just like, like an inch away from the monitor, just watching it so closely and trying to just like be in my own little bubble there. Um, and then it's a little bit of a feeling, right? Did that feel right? And it's so hard because as a director, you know, like you, there's a side of you that has to be choreographing everything that's going on in the production and where things are and how you're going to edit it. And then there's the other side of it. That's like very much an intuitive, inexplainable thing. Right. Right. Is like, do you feel it or do you not? Right. And I think when you're getting your start, it's so easy to be distracted by the logistics of it all mm-hmm. and feeling the pressure of time, feeling the pressure of uh, these people around you waiting. But as I've gotten more experience, I do feel like leaning into that intuition and also being a little bit patient. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's hard, hard because it's like, yeah. but at the end of the day, you're protecting like the integrity of the story that you're telling by holding or waiting, or even this is great advice from uh, a DP that I've worked extensively with named Brian Thomas. He says, the best advice is sometimes just letting the camera run Mm -hmm. and seeing what happens. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah. But I I do remember like what you're saying when I was starting off and especially when you're kind of doing it all DIY and, you know, there's like, this person's mad at you that (laughs) this, you're running out of time. This thing broke, like nothing is working. And you can just spend all your energy focusing on all the stuff, you know? But at the end of the day, all that matters is what's going to end up on tape. And if it's amazing and it does well, then that person who's like pissed off because you're an hour late is not going to really care at the end of the day, you know? Like they'll just get over with. Right. And And they (laughs) should. And they should. Now, I want to go back to Bear, the first film that, your first feature film. and how you got on set as a first-time feature director and set the tone for the the shoot. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I did a great job at it <laughs> because it was also, well, it was my first feature. I was shooting in New Mexico with a lot of local crew. I was, I still am a small woman and I was young, that younger back then. So I think that a lot of people were a little thrown off by my presence as a director there. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this experience. And there were some people who were just very blatant about it. Like there was like a gaffer that started calling me little one. I was like, oh my God. I was like, would you, you can't call me, stop calling me little one. It's belittling, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't take me seriously. What are you doing? And I had to call him out on it. So it was, it was, there was some challenges because there was like very much a culture. This was 2014. It's just a, like a little bit of a machismo culture on set that yeah. I had to try to break down. Um, but I'd say like with the actors, I, I love working with actors and I always try to like connect with them on a very deep, vulnerable level. And mm-hmm. that part was amazing. You know, even though there was, there were some like, casting drama in making bear like i had actually two leads that dropped out shortly before oh my gosh we started shooting yeah so i had to 
replace them very quickly before the financier just pulled their money out and the film was not going to get made. Holy shit. So it was like a little bit chaotic in that sense, but um, but I spent a lot, I put spent a lot of time working with the actors that did end up being in the cast and mm-hmm. and we really got along. So that part of it was lovely. Was this through rehearsals before you were shooting and also getting to know them as people? What did that time building those connections look like? It was more getting to know them as people. I don't like to do rehearsals personally because I feel like it gets people stuck in a way of like what they think is right or wrong. Interesting. And I like to I like to sit and talk about the script and talk about how it makes us feel and what's happening in the scene and really break it down. But I don't like to actually physically rehearse it because then, yeah, people people kind of focus on one thing and it's maybe then they have like a few days before they start shooting and they and then it's like cemented in by the time Mm -hmm. we shoot it. Right. Mm -hmm. And going back to the improv stuff, like I really like to keep things a bit loose. Um, And that's something that I did on Bear, too. Like there were some people who were cast as day players who had never done any acting and we just kind of we would just play around, you know, and like, see, does this work? And also within the constraints of time. So you're like, okay, I can't, I can't go playing on playing too much, but like, let's use the space we have to try to make some magic here. Right. I'm, I'm sure the comfort of having that time to, to play and not go off script, but like work within a framework also comes from your experience in doc where, you know, you have to be patient and let something unfold and let it be what it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think it also helps in that scenario. We were all staying in New Mexico outside mm-hmm. of Albuquerque. So we were all staying at a Best Western and we would like, it was like literally off the side of the highway. We would have picnics on the lawn yeah. on the weekends and just try to get to know each other a little bit. And that just makes it more fun because I think we're in such a privileged position to be doing what we do that it has right. to be fun. <laughs> Like if yeah. you're not having fun with it, what are you doing? You What's know? the point? What's yeah, the point? It's like, exactly. it's already going to, it's going to be stressful and hard and you just have to make the most of the enjoyment part of it. Yeah. So I want to use that as a transition into talking about your second feature MFA, which to make a second feature period is huge for a director. And so you went in having taken having taken learnings from your first feature into a much more ambitious film in terms of the setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, we're talking a ton of extras. And also, I think there's just such an art in making a campus feel real and authentic, yeah. uh, making a party at feel real and authentic. And like, I think that's when I, how I discern if somebody is a skilled director is if they can make a party feel real. Yeah, And you did that. And I'd love to talk about how you had conversations with the talent, specifically around the scene where the main character who is getting her MFA in an arts program, which I'm like, sounds familiar now that I'm saying it out loud, goes to a party to, to see this guy that she has a crush on. And the scene where like there's this big turn. What was that conversation like leading up to that moment with the actors. Yeah, so Francesca Eastwood, we had cast her. Her and I had a lot of chats prior to getting on set, like sat down and talked about it and got, I was always just like very much vulnerable. Like, let me share 
experiences that I've had, you know, including mm-hmm. my own sexual assault. Like, let me put you in touch with other people who've been sexually assaulted so that you can hear their experiences and learn from it. And maybe that'll just inform things. So like, I love that. That's for me, rehearsal, right? It's like yeah. getting informed. So she did a lot of that. I kind of put her in touch with people and she went and did her own research. Then we would talk about the scene and Peter Vack, who plays the guy who rapes her in the scene, is someone that was a friend and I had knew had worked with before. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, he's just a great guy, you know. And he's like, he can he can commit to a role, yeah. as you see, like in the yeah. movie, he really commits to the, that role. It's scary, and and then so then three of us like had long conversations, like what do you feel comfortable with, what do you not, and her. You know, because there's no intimacy coordinator at the time. That was not a right. role on set. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. There was no, Me Too hadn't happened yet, right? So it was just me and Fran having these conversations and be like, if he touches you, where do you feel comfortable? And just letting it come from her, right? Letting right. her tell me. And then putting the three of them, to us, the three of us together and letting her tell him, this is okay. This is not okay. So mm-hmm. it's not like me ever imposing. Right, so once right. we figured out, like, why is this scene important? Like, why is this the real violence in this movie? Then she's going to go off, the character's going to go off and kill guys, but the real violence is the sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And so what are we making here? And we're all on the same page. And Francesca is a fearless person and fully committed to it. Then it's like, okay, let's make it a safe space. Right. When we got into filming that scene, of course, it was a closed set and all. But I just remember there was a moment when we just played it like a long take. Like we didn't yeah. really c- cut around. We're just like, let's just play it in real time. Right. And I'm in the corner, like hiding behind the bed with my monitor and the DP's in there and the sound guy and like, that's it, right? And it's, we're just letting it play out in real time. And it's like five minutes and it's just horrendous that yeah. I just like even forget to, that I'm watching and I'm supposed to yell cut. And I'm physically ill watching this thing yeah and that's when you're like wow we really went there and we did something that's impactful and we know exactly why we're doing it this way and the choice to let it uh, let it unfold in real time I think is such a powerful choice and something that feels so true to the story and true to this vision that you had as a director where like you know there could be a stylized heightened version of it but that almost takes away from the gravity of this is the true violence within this story yes yeah exactly and I had watched a bunch of rape and other media and just really wanted to understand how people portray this traumatic event and just Mm -hmm. decide uh, just make conscious conscious choices about what I was going to do you know what how I was adding to the conversation Right, um, right. There's another scene in the movie where it's on a video, right? But it's a scene where there's a gang rape. That one was also really hard because, so it was three guys and a girl and she's intoxicated in the scene. So she's at a frat party and it, there's a gang rape that happens. And like, we had to shoot this at seven in the morning. And the guys, they were, again, there was like all the conversation ahead, but then the guys were just like, they were all so nervous and uncomfortable. And I, ha- I had right. to remind them, I'm like, no, you're here because this is a party and you're having fun. You're supposed mm-hmm. to be having fun. And so we like blasted some music. I was like, if you want to go take some shots, do whatever you need to do. Don't tell yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get, to loosen up. Yeah. But it was like, 
yeah, we we were playing music and they started like getting into it, Mm -hmm. into their character. They know they're doing something horrific, but to make it real, they have to be having fun. Yeah. And and that's the authenticity that you are watching for. And that I I think it's actually such a important thing to call out because if your actors are thinking about what they're they're doing in the context of the story versus what they're doing in the context of the moment, then that that's where the it feels inauthentic. Because and I think I always come back to I was just talking this weekend about the deer hunter and I remember my high school acting teacher, shout out to Kim Taylor. Yeah. She's a genius. She had us watch the the roulette scene and the famous iconic scene. And in this in the scene, you know, we we watched it and her she was illustrating how we act in real life, you know, differently than how, you know, if you're in this scene, they laugh. They're playing Russian roulette, they're shooting bullets or in empty chambers into their head and they're laughing because they're so terrified. And so often we do like we also have to be aware of like we can't be playing the the drama of it. We have to be playing the the truth of like uh-huh. how we would perform or what that sort of vulnerability would be. Yeah. Um and I think to even get to the point where like these actors in this scene are engaged of like they're having fun and like feeling that and feeling excited by it like that that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I, and it must be hard for them because you have to, on the one hand, remember, okay, she said, don't touch me here, here, and here. And I'm, mm. I'm, I'm being respectful to the actor, actress that I'm working with. On the other hand, you have to not be, not have that at the forefront of your mind because then right. otherwise, if you do something, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. Or, you know, and it's like, and then you're suddenly self-censoring and it's going to start feeling stiff. Yeah. So how to balance that out is important. It's a good reminder at, at how vulnerable it is to be an actor in front of the lens, period. Like, yeah. it, I, I think we so easily forget that or we get, you know, it's, we're just, it's just distorted by how glamorous it seems, but it's actually incredibly vulnerable, whether it's a scene like this or a scene where somebody is telling somebody that they love them yeah. or telling their parents the truth about yeah. who they are. It's incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. And so for actors to be able to access that and to create a space where it's safe to access that, that's yeah. so, so important. Yeah. And I, I think it also goes from, it's like the prep that goes before, the during, and then also mm-hmm. the after. Like after shooting such a horrific, dark scene that we can all come together and say, are you okay? Is everyone mm-hmm. feeling okay? Like, do we need support? Because right. we just witnessed this, recreated a very traumatic moment. Yeah, for the screen. I'd love to talk about how you approach different formats. So something that it when you are shooting a feature, you know, there's this kind of summer camp bubble that you're in and you have the time to sort of lead up and build that rapport and then drop out and 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 have that time to unpack what just happened and then you come to set the next day and you're you're continuing that momentum, but you also work extensively in commercials. Mm-hmm. You also work extensively as a TV director. Two worlds where you're like jumping in in a shorter amount of time. So, like, how do you approach these different formats as a director? Yeah. So, I mean, they they're all pretty separate in the industry. I find like there's not a, there's a lot of crossover directors doing like commercials and television or features. 
but the crew is sort of different and all that. So like there are some separations, but at the end of the day, it's, it's all storytelling, right? And it all strives, uh, all starts from having like really good characters. And so I kind of lo- like to look at all the mediums in that way and thinking, even if I'm doing a 30 second spot for a brand, that it's rooted in good characters and good storytelling. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then I won't say yes to the job and then I'm not the right person for it, you know? Yeah. So it comes from like what you're selecting to do as well. Um, and I do feel like sometimes it's forced me to think differently about how I tell stories where if you have an hour and a half and then suddenly you have 30 seconds, it's mm-hmm. like you have to think so so differently and it's good. Like it's a great exercise and I end up, you know, putting some of what I learned in the 30 second into the Mm -hmm. hour and a half experience. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like it's good on a creative level just to stretch different parts of the muscle that you never use. Right. Yeah. If you're only doing one medium and then also on a practical level, it gives you experience of just working with a lot of different types of people, the experience of having to deal with like a client, commercial client, is sometimes not all that different from having to deal with network network executives that have certain demands for the show yeah. you're making. It's yeah, they feed each other. How do you approach like handling those relationships? We had Sam Hargrave, the director of Extraction and Extraction Two, on the other week, and he gave us great advice on like emailing and sending and establishing rapport with people. And I think this is something we don't talk that much about in this industry. Is like building those relationships. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's always going to be a client type person, whether it's a network exec or the client of the brand, or even, you know, the executive producer or financier who's funding your film. Like, how do you build those relationships and have that rapport? Yeah. I mean, there's the, the, if the people I've worked with that we get along well, and we have similar vibes. Like I definitely keep in touch, definitely reach out and stay build a community from it because it is so important. This is such a people industry. And mm-hmm. um, and then it comes around. Like I have had relationships with agencies that then have hired me multiple times or yeah. have recommended me. Like if one of them, I did a spot for Vans and he knew the guy, the people from North Face. So like, then I went from one amazing brand to another amazing brand, like mm-hmm. people I want to keep working with. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was all through recommendation after I had done a good job. So that's important. Same for like the tel- in the television industry. So much about who's recommending you to people. is That goes a really long way. Yeah. I'd love to talk about the Vans spot. Feel free to chime in on the setup, but it's a group of people who are going on a walk and it's a photography lesson and a sort of like figuring out the lens in which you want to tell a story through this walk. What was the conception of that? Did did the idea exist before you were brought on and did you pitch your take? What was that step-by-step process? Yeah, so the idea existed. They wanted to do it as a series and this was going to be launching the series, which was in a sense, uh, bringing creative people together mm-hmm. and talking about how they express themselves in through a certain medium, which in this case was photography. So the first one we did was with Olivia B, who's a brilliant photographer. So um, her and I talked a little bit about like what she wanted to do. She was like, oh, let's you know, find these five different people and like go on a walk around town and then show what we're you know, f- 
show what photos we came up with. And it was very, yeah, it was like very intuitive in the way that I think both of us were operating. And then I kind of wanted to mimic a little bit of her style in the way that I was filming the spot. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to like learn from her aesthetic and incorporate it into my aesthetic, which is like, I mean, going back to talking about how to deal with like client and showrunners and all the other people, it's like, I remind myself like this is, even though I might have a really strong point of view, I'm working in a collaborative medium. And sometimes it's not just about me, 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 right? It's Mm -hmm. about like stepping back and being like, oh, okay, I would have thought of that, but that's a great idea. Like, let's just bring that in to the full, right? And it's how to find the balance of having your voice, but also not being a dictator, like also remembering that there's so much to be had in collaborating and sometimes fulfilling someone else's vision. Yeah. I want to hear a little bit more about your post-production process. And I know it varies based on format, but how do you like to collaborate with editors, which is, you know, that sort of getting to the final stage of honing the story. And you are a writer as well as yeah. a director. So um, it's it's an interesting space to be in uh, because I think editors are storytellers as well. They are writing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with editors, I'm someone who I like to shot list the edit. So when I'm thinking about the scene and I'm breaking it down, I'm really thinking about how it's going to cut together. So I'm not, yeah. I don't have um, extra stuff floating around. Right. And I, especially for television, because the time is pretty limited and your time with the editor is pretty limited that I like to be as prepared as possible and just deliver, like, here's what I, I would piece together. Here's my paper edit in a yeah. sense. Right. And then I like having editors who do have their own strong opinions too, would be like, okay, here's your paper edit. I did it, but I think it would be so much better if this was here, this thing yeah. happened first, you know? And like, we can have conversations around that and, and um, collaborate. Now, digging into specifically the tools of your paper edit and your shot listing, shot listing for the edit. Are you a pen and paper gal? Are you uh, video storyboarding with your iPhone or your mobile phone? Or do you use a specific software? I, I'm, I, you know, I have an iPad, but I just never want to bring it around. Yeah, I'm such yeah. a pen and paper gal. I'm so old school. I'm not even that old. And I'm right there with you. I, I'm like, and I've been debating whether I should get an iPad for like too long. Yeah, I have the iPad. I have Scriptation. I have like a lot. What's the other program I use a lot? Um, I like Notability or things to draw yeah. stuff, but I end up just doing it on pen and paper. And then I print it out because I, I don't want to be like, in the moment, I don't want to have to like open my iPad and like find the thing and I skip through. Like I have my binder. I still right. just bring a binder to set and I print out my shot list and then I scratch it off like once I've got stuff. Um, That's and, so satisfying. Oh, it's How so satisfying. satisfying. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> I get it. And I don't want to carry it. around this bulky thing. Like I have like literally my shot list is folded into five squares in my back pocket. And sometimes I pull it out if it's like raining or something and it's all yeah. soggy. And I'm like, okay, we need to get this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Getting it apart. Yeah, it's, it's really old school. I love but it. But it works for me. That's how my brain operates. Yeah. I mean, you start, you, you're, the beginning of your journey was submitting a, a portfolio of drawings. Yeah, exactly. So, so it still kind of goes that way. Yeah. And, I, and love that. I feel lucky that now 
on some shoots, I'll be given a storyboard artist, which wow. is great. So like we'll work together and I'll have fours to show too. I'll still probably print that out. Or yes. if not, I'm doing my own little stick figure, simple line drawings just to communicate some stuff. Nice. Yeah. Now, now I want to hear what's coming up for you. What's next? You've had such an amazing storied career already. Yeah. And you're just getting started. Yeah. So I'm dying to do another feature. It's been a minute because MFA came out in 2017. And I've been grateful that the past, since 2017, I got like really deep into commercials, did a bunch of branded spots. Then I went, now I've been really deep in television and Mm -hmm. have the next thing that's going to come out for me actually is I did a show called Black Cake, which is based on a book. It's going to be on Hulu probably in the fall. So I got to do the pilot for that, which I'm very excited about. And it's a big story we shot in like Jamaica and Wales, like all different parts of the world. Um, So that's next in terms of being released. And then, um, yeah, there's scripts and stuff that I'm working on really and on the feature side, which hopefully as soon as the strike is done, we'll get that moving along. It's a weird time. Can't wait. I can't wait for the next the next feature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and now what advice do you have for emerging filmmakers, folks who are just getting their start? Ah, that's always a good one. There's so much, so much advice. Um, I would say, ah, I would say like to just always think big picture because mm-hmm. I think especially now we're used to just wanting the immediacy of everything. And right. since I started working it's just, you've got to play the long game. Like people give right. up because they don't have like the immediate satisfaction. And it's like, do your thing, play the long game. Like think about the five year, the 10 year, you know, and just keep going, keep going. Because part of our job is to accept rejection. It's going to happen. You might do with a short, my first shorts, they didn't get any to, into any good festivals. You know, it didn't matter at that point. Like just go and do and pick it up, do it again. You know, didn't work out, just do it again. And learn from what you're doing. Like I have an endless Google Doc where after every big project, I take a minute to write down what I learned. I'm always learning from them, those experiences. And just allowing yourself the learning curve and mm-hmm. looking at the far future of where you want your career to go and grow is super important. Yeah, that helps put it into perspective in the moments that it's tough yeah. on set in the trenches, also in the moments where it feels like there's nothing happening, things are happening. It's just, if you zoom out, you can see the progress. Yes, exactly. I have like this little note on my, this is my current mantra. It says, what you focus on expands. Oh, I love that. With a starburst next to it, an (laughs) ever-expanding starburst. Yeah. So just What you focus on expands. I have to write that down and put it on a post-it. Yeah. Put it on one of my shape post-its here. Yeah, do it. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Natalia, and and come back and when you have the feature so we can we can unpack and check in and see where you're at with with number three. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Gigi. That's really nice. Thank you to Natalia for joining us on the podcast, for geeking out with us on your process and everything in between. After we stopped recording, we spoke a bit more about being on set as a newer director, as someone who's shorter than the average person, as a woman, as someone with a baby face. 
When you're in a leadership position and for whatever reason, you're not getting the respect as a filmmaker that you deserve, Natalia gave great advice to hold people accountable. You can lead with strength and warmth and your voice and vision can be strong and clear. And it's okay to say when something's not okay. This is just a little reminder for myself and all of the listeners here. Thank you for listening, by the way, to our podcast. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your thoughts. We've had some great emails recently, and we love hearing what you want to hear more of. Email us at podcast at nofilmschool.com, and you can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com, and follow us across socials at nofilmschool. We appreciate you tuning in, and we'll be back with some more No Film School next week. <laughs>